Indie or AAA? Indie. IAPs or ads? Ads. Casual or strategy? Strategy. You're listening to Level Up with Melissa Zalouf. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Melissa Zalouf, and you're listening to Level Up, the podcast for people who love making, growing, and of course, playing mobile games. Today on the show, we have Nate Barker, Director of Business Development at Fluffy Fairy Games. Nate, thanks for being here. Thanks, Melissa. I'm happy to be here. So let's start off with you telling us a little bit about yourself. You're Director of Business Development at Fluffy Fairy Games. You describe yourself as an unabashed game enthusiast, and you've filled a variety of roles in the industry throughout your career in a variety of different places. So my question is, how has that experience of the game industry changed or differed across different countries and companies? Sure. So I started my career at Disney Mobile working actually in the customer support. So we were working on a game called Tap Tap Revenge, which was basically like Dance Dance Revolution or Guitar Hero, but for mobile. I would recommend to anybody to actually start if you're looking to get your start in, in your career in mobile games. In customer support, it's a pretty good place or in QA. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the audience of this particular podcast is probably well beyond that. But (laughs) the reason that I think that is that it gives you a nice horizontal slice through the entirety of the mobile game production process. Interesting. Yeah. So you're starting with just seeing what player responses are, as well as looking at maybe some basic marketing things that are going on. And as you continue your career through either QA or through customer support, you begin to see a little bit more about what happens on the technical side and how some of the business decisions are being made. I think one of the most important things about the gaming industry is that you need to maintain a tight focus on what actually makes your players happy and not just on some of the sexier metrics that are often bandied about. Things like DAU and stuff, you know, MAU, mm-hmm. RPDAO, stuff like that is important. But if you lose sight of the fact that you're making games for people who are often not as technically savvy necessarily, sometimes they think they're very technically savvy, but they're not, <laughs> you can make better decisions about the right way to drive your monetization or your UA or any of your engineering decisions based around that player. So that was the kind of the first spot that I started my career. And then I went off into advertising land uh, and worked um, mostly with indie developers. And from there, jumped a few spots to a publisher in Taiwan. And I worked at uh, a live ops for charity company in San Francisco before ending up at Fluffy Fairy Games, where I'm very happy to be here in Berlin. (laughs) I would say that between all of the countries, particularly when it came to the game development side, there are definitely some vast differences in terms of how decisions are made for one side of it. It's because of just the sizes of the companies and where they were in terms of their life cycle, if they were successful, if they were just starting. And to some degree, it was definitely based on the regional cultures. So a company in Silicon Valley is going to move extremely quickly. Um, so when I worked at Disney, it was it was definitely in uh, Palo Alto, which is part of the Silicon Valley area. And it moved quickly. There is not often a whole lot of documentation about what was going on. Decisions were made. It was also the early days of mobile. It was like eight years ago. So early days of smartphones, at least, where you could make decisions really fast and work on deals that had never been done before. You know, brand integrations and advertising was just starting. The world of ad mediation was pretty new on both web and on mobile. But, you know, versus something like the company I worked for in Taiwan, things 
took longer. I think there was a little bit more risk aversion that people felt. And also the target audiences were a little different. So in the US, it was very much like a young US focus, which was the company I worked for there. Whereas in Taiwan, we had to be very mindful of developing simultaneously for an Eastern and a Western market, which is an enormous challenge. Germany is, Fluffy Fair Games is like splitting the difference. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, we'll move quickly, but we are going to be conservative in certain choices. We want to make sure that we're saving our money and not making wild bets on technology or things like that or overspending, you know, just for the sake of it. I mean, there was a period where you could just spend as much as possible to get as high in the charge as possible because of the way that the app stores were set up back then. That was a completely viable strategy that was sophisticated for its time. And now if you did that, I think any sophisticated marketing manager or director would probably not be too happy. No. <laughs> so it's funny you say that things moved very fast at Disney because you'd, you'd assume that at a company of that size, things would actually move quite slowly. And I know that actually one of the things that characterizes Fluffy Fairy is, is speed, right? This this very fast, iterative, heavy on updates process. What's it like to work in that kind of atmosphere? So the reason that I think things move really quickly when I was at Disney is that it had just acquired Tabulous, which was, I suppose, a company that is emblematic of the Silicon Valley startup space, and that they made a bunch of bets very early on on a bunch of different types of apps that they thought might do well when the first iPhone was coming out. So nobody really knew if games would take off, maybe people wouldn't like the screen size. The phones initially, they still are expensive, but they were almost prohibitively expensive mm. in the early days. Like there weren't 13 year olds who were getting right. on iPhones. It was it was adults, right? Yeah. And they were first movers. So those are the type of people who, you know, maybe they're just trying to find an alternative to a BlackBerry. So they liked <laughs> maybe the web browser better or something like this. So nobody really knew if games were going to work. They did though, which was a pleasant surprise. And how? <laughs> yeah, and how, believe it or not. <laughs> You can make a living making games for a screen the size of a playing card. Mm -hmm. So I think that that was a big part of why Disney, at least when I was there, was pretty open to Tapulous kind of operating as it was. I'm sure that as time went on, you know, things got a little bit more corporate and structured, particularly when it comes to accessing the premier Disney IP. But in terms of Fluffy Fairy games, we move extremely quickly. We have week-long sprints. Um, So we'll do our sprint planning starting on Friday. We'll do a review of the previous week, then uh, plan for the next week and move as fast as we can deliver the maximum output by the following Friday. So the developers are always working on the week of development, of course, but the game designers are always one week ahead, almost exactly, and the, the QA people ideally are just one week behind. That's so that's a lot of coordination. <laughs> it, it is. And we, we manage this by keeping pretty small teams and having all of the folks that need to be coordinating, talking directly to each other. So we try not to have too much upper management meddling in terms of what's going on or approval processes. Uh So if you're a game designer and you're trying to get the next week's prototype set up or ready to go, you're talking directly to the artists to make sure that they're creating art assets for you and also to the engineers so that they have a heads up. We also have smaller teams. So we have maybe um, four or five engineers two or three artists and two game designers per project. The core of it is that we're not making PC games that require 30 engineers just to do a level or something along these lines. Mm -hmm. It's small and nimble. And in fact, that's relatively speaking, or maybe traditionally unconventional for the game industry in the sense that 
you came out with Idle Miner Tycoon very quickly. And then sort of the idea was getting the MVP out and then updating and iterating. I think you're on what, an update a week now? I think I read somewhere. Exactly. So what else has been kind of unconventional about working at Fluffy Fairy? Does the iterative process or the, the, the sprint culture filter down also to other areas like monetization or marketing? Yeah, the theory behind this is that we're trying to juggle two things, which are often at odds with each other. And I think it's the tension between those two things that actually makes this work. And the two Mm -hmm. things are, number one, we want to do projects that are achievable within a week. So we'll have some sort of results in some way within a week. And so that's the one side. And that's the iterative process that maybe is more familiar for people who read the Lean Startup or these types of things. On the other hand, our end goal is to do things that will have a 10x increase in the results that we're putting in and a 10x increase in our revenue and a 10x increase uh, in all the different performance KPIs. Mm -hmm. So that would mean that we're not spending a lot of time, even if there's incremental revenue, say, in adding a new strange ad format or something like this or adding in things that are aesthetically pleasing, right? We're not going to do a reskin just because it it feels like the art director is and he wants something new to work on. So he's going to do that. So we're only working on things that are going to drive a huge amount of revenue, we think. And that tension where we're trying to decide, you know, what's the quickest sprint we can make in order to get to that long-term objective that's driving our decisions everywhere. So that comes to the marketing side where we focus on basically one number, which is the margins between mm-hmm. how much we're spending and our revenue. On the monetization side, where we're looking at the average revenue per daily engaged user, right, which is the one metric we can tune to. And on the large larger, more strategic level, the management team is looking at a number of KPIs that are extremely important. Obviously, revenue is one of them. You need to keep the lights on. But also, we're looking at the rating. So is our star rating good? And our retention. If our day one retention is, you know, 70%, we're happy. If it goes down to 69% or 68 or 65, it becomes really problematic. So by just focusing on a number of key, extremely informative metrics, we can make sure that we're we're on the right track when it comes to that stuff. We're not crazy though. So obviously there are things that impact all of those metrics and we don't want to lose sight, right? We're looking at DAU, of course, even if it's to some degree a um, vanity metric because Mm -hmm. it, it helps to inform where all the other things are moving. But it's not something that we want to optimize on. It's more informative rather than really instructive, if, if that makes sense. You're sort of saying, okay, I'm going to make a quick change and I'm going to see, we're going to see if this works. And on the other hand, you only want to make a change that's going to have a big impact. And if that impact is negative, it's a big risk to take. So I don't know, maybe the answer is it kind of does both, but I'm curious whether this is sort of actually quite freeing as a strategy or whether it's sort of like, okay, we're going to roll out an update. We'd better be right. Sure. This strategy does increase the risk aversion somewhat. So one thing um, that's part of my role here at Fluffy Fairy Games is to field a lot of the inbound business proposals that we receive. And Mm -hmm. it ends up being very much a game of saying no in as many creative ways as possible. (laughs) And the number one reason that I will say no to people is that whatever the proposal is, as interesting as it sounds, or as cool as it might be to, you know, license our game for, I don't know, astronauts or something so they can play it on (laughs) the International Space Station, which I'll add is not something that we've been asked to do yet, but it sounds like <laughs> as interesting as that is, if it's incremental, I, I, there's no way that I can get that to happen internally and we'll just never spend any time on it. So I think that for a lot of game developers who are still 
struggling to find ways that they can generate revenue. Like for a long period, ads didn't really make a whole lot of sense for most game developers. Now I think this has changed, but ads didn't really work because they weren't generating enough money and they were sort of divorced from the design. uh, Yeah, they were were divorced from like the the gameplay experience. It was just, oh, this is interrupting you. There, of course, there was like offer walls where they were kind of more embedded, but sometimes it was hard to get players over there and you couldn't really serve them the same way that you can serve up an ad unit. So for a long time, this uh, paradigm existed where you were either a game developer who had mastered your monetization when it came to this, like a strategy game or something, or you just happened to luck out and have a ton of users and you could serve up a bunch of interstitials really quickly or a bunch of banners and that's how you made your money. But it was a little more hit or miss. And so there's this, I guess, this process, this thinking pattern still when it comes to a lot of developers where they're looking for these incremental in- increases to their revenue and all of these different businesses kind of spring up around that. Where it's like, okay, well, we can increase this by 2% and this by 5%. And people end up spinning their wheels trying to do this stuff. And what we found is that if you just shut that away and you only focus on the big opportunities and doing things that was more, you know, directed towards enhancing player experience or some larger monetization um, impact. Yeah, then it's interesting. But I guess uh, it really depends on a a developer's financial situation. (laughs) Maybe yes, as, as as many things do. Yeah, And there's something about the iterative process that reminds me a little of Gram Games who operate, I think, in a, in a similar way. Do you think we're going to see a wider industry shift towards this kind of thing with more game companies opting for sort of fast development, deployment, and then sort of measurement and, and update versus spending months or even years building the perfect game before launching? That's an interesting question. And for me, the answer is really that we're just kind of on a pendulum and it's just going to swing back and forth. I think a lot of people like to point to the amount of money that you can make in freemium and say that, okay, this is indicative of entirely where the industry is going forever. And Anytime somebody makes like a really wide sweeping declaration like that, even if when I'm saying it now, it's a bit of a straw man, I'm inclined to think that that's not necessarily going to be true because I look at what's going on in other parts of the gaming universe in console and PC and There are certain types of projects that still are captivating for people emotionally that just require so much investment to actually see to fruition that I think that eventually the pendulum will swing backwards and it will again require people to invest a tremendous amount of time in the long-term development of projects. In the short term, though, I I think what you said about Gram Games is probably pretty accurate and that most developers will begin to see that they can get something out within a reasonable amount of time and just iterate on top of that for maybe more of a mobile experience that doesn't require as much depth or balancing or graphics or things like that. But mm-hmm. long term, I don't know. I think it's I think it's going to swing. So then what does that mean for idle games? Meaning, obviously, this is the focus at, at Fluffy Fairy. What do you think is the appeal of idle games? Why are they doing so successfully? So it's interesting as a segue from more immersive, emotionally expansive game experiences like console to idle games because whereas those types of games right now as of this moment demand a huge amount of investment from players mm-hmm. uh, and from developers both you know time investment from players so they are hardcore players and of course the developers have to build the universe around them those same players are then going to idle games where they're hardcore they like to the players themselves they like to min max all of the different stats within their game but they want something that i think is maybe a little less emotionally taxing 
but <laughs> gives them this sort of like sense of, of control. So mm-hmm. for idle games, there's an interesting thing that we were talking about a little earlier before the, the podcast. We were talking about this article by Quantic Foundry, where they discussed how the idle games scene, the, the demographic, is very much a hardcore game player. And I think that in order to captivate this hardcore game player in the long term, if this will continue to work, the developers who are making those idle games are going to have to build them in such a way that they can easily be expanded with more hardcore sensibilities. So by that, you know, one thing that we think about a lot are some of our competitors. Mm-hmm. And the early competitors for idle games, I mean, the early idle games were just clicker games, right? It was like Cow Clicker, which was a joke. And there was Cookie Clicker, which was just kind of building on the joke, but still more of <laughs> a joke. And if you think about it like a horseshoe, you know, we started at one end of the horseshoe and we went progressively a little bit more complicated, complicated, complicated. And so we're all the way at the end of this horseshoe and we've just kind of bended back. Whereas the first idle games were, you know, a parody of traditional strategy games because it was just mm. taking out all the work for you. Now there is a lot of strategy. So I think what will probably happen is that um, like when we make our games, we try to make them so that they can easily be expanded. Whereas I think when a lot of people who are just getting into idle game development, they try to fix them to a certain size you know, a certain number of businesses that you can run on a very detailed map. And I think we're doing a, a pretty good job of balancing out what, what needs an extensive amount of balancing by the developers and what is something that the player will just enjoy seeing an increased number of, say, earnings or things like that. We're going to get a little nerdy here, but when it comes to idle games, <laughs> right, you start out with like a, a 10 and you're increasing by magnitudes of 10 or 100 or 1,000. Mm-hmm. So you go from like $10 a day to 1,000 to a million. Eventually, the numbers become so high that you have to use like placeholders that are just letters out of the English alphabet. Mm-hmm. So, but like that, that takes no development to go from, oh, you know, this this month we're going to add it in so you can go from, you know, earning a thousand A per week to a thousand B or a thousand C, like that doesn't take much. And we like those kind of features because they're they're easy to replicate along those lines, right? Oh, we'll just add more mine shafts. So we add more workbenches versus developers who spend so much time on art where they have to make it, they have to make a huge investment to like add a new series of businesses or towers or things like this. So I think those types of games in certain ways are limiting themselves in, in this era of idle games, but might portend the future of idle games if they end up going down the route that I mentioned earlier of having to be much more hardcore. Interesting. Do you think there are sort of classic mistakes that developers looking to get into the idle space make in trying to innovate or upgrade the idle experience while retaining the basic mechanics? Sure. So one thing that's important to us is that we try not to add anything like a tutorial or initial stories within the games because when people are playing it on a small screen, we notice that they tend to just want to skip through all that stuff and get straight to the meat of it, which is why things like playable ads work intrinsically very well because people just understand mostly how games work and they just want to play the game and they're not looking for in this type of game a lot of text that's guiding them or intervening in their um, their gameplay experience, really distracting them. I think there will always be room for story-driven idle games and more story-driven projects. And you see that especially when it comes to the like heavily story games like um, Choices or things like this where it's choose your own adventure. So it's certainly possible. For the time being, we like to avoid those simply because of the amount of work that must be invested. Like we can't come up with a a whole narrative within a week and implement that. Like we just won't have the time for that. Perhaps it depends on specialization of your demographic. So we skew towards this hardcore audience that wants something that they can play while they're not playing or in between levels of like Call of Duty or something like this. And 
they want something that's relatively simple to pick up. It's possible that if you're looking for a demographic that's not ours, that's not 18 to 35-year-old males that still like idle games because it's still fun to do, there might be a huge opportunity to add a story that is compelling and emotional. The problem, though, with idle games is that when it comes to things like story and traditional gaming elements and gaming mechanics, is that you can't lose in an idle game. If it's a good idle game, there's just no way to lose. Things mm-hmm. just sort of flow down and peter out. And that's when you're supposed to spend money or watch an ad or prestige. So the game would have to be developed in such a way that the story can proceed in an interesting, compelling fashion without winning dependent on that traditional mechanic. Right. Do you think we're going to see kind of idle games get very good or very innovative in terms of features like haptic feedback or vibrations or kind of innovate in that direction as opposed to in the more narrative direction? Yeah, I think the cool thing with idle games is that you can approach them more as a philosophy towards how to make a game and less as necessarily a roadmap or blueprint for precisely what game to make. So in that, uh, I mean that an idle game doesn't just have to be a spreadsheet with an interface, right, which is how a lot of idle games are. You can embed the idle mechanic where you're idly earning something into other types of genres in such a way that, that you can add in all these features and potentially do things in VR or AR or stuff like this. So if you have players that maybe are you know interested in like there's good idle racing games that are out there and those types of games might be some more of the the direction that future idle games will have and they have opportunities to add in all of these cool features or you know if you create somehow some idle choose your own adventure game you know you could you could do things that are more immersive using some of the cool audioscapes or or things that you know are are compelling to players I, i guess it would really depend on idle games making a more you know a bigger jump to perhaps different devices. Right now, like the simpler idle games work super well on phones because it's something you can do for five minutes on a, you know, on your commute. Small screen. Yeah, but like if you're looking for something that you can sit down and play for two or three hours, you know, the idle would have to be like a subcomponent of, you know, a larger, like a first person shooter or an RPG or something like this. And that's where you might begin to see some more innovation in terms of user input or stuff like that. So I want to jump back to something you said about playable ads and look at kind of what ads work well inside idle games. You said that monetizing with interruptive ad, I mean that everyone would agree with you with interruptive ad experiences at the end of the day, wasn't a very good long-term strategy, wasn't really driving crazy revenue. And I'm sort of curious how big a part rewarded video plays in Fluffy Fairy's monetization strategy, because that's an ad unit where, you know, it's basically a microtransaction. It's part of the game experience. Yeah, I mean, in the very beginning, we built the game so that it basically had no monetization in it. And the first thing that we wanted to add was a way that you could manipulate one of the two core variables of our idle game and of most idle games, which is speed and payout. So you're either controlling how quickly you make money or how quickly you build an upgrade or the payout you get from said upgrade. And one thing that we implemented first was that when you return to the game, if you watch an ad, you can double your earnings for the time you were away. And if you're in the game, you can watch an ad 
and double your earnings overall for a certain period. Mm. So we added this and it was enormously successful. Players liked the fact that they could watch this um, at their own leisure whenever they're ready to. It's not interruptive and they can not watch it all. So we're not gating really any content if they don't want to watch an ad. It's entirely opt-in. The one, I guess, caveat there is that it might take you longer to reach certain things if you don't watch an ad. But generally speaking... You can still reach the points you need to. Exactly. You can reach the things you're, you're looking for. And uh, oftentimes the things that are being advertised are other similar idle games that the players like. And we haven't really noticed any drop in our retention because of mm-hmm. it. Uh, it seems like players are playing four or five of these at the same time. And what's crazy, too, is that some of our players are watching like 30 plus ads in a course of a session. Um, wow. Crazy. For the most part, we try to cap it. So we don't want players to watch more than, say, like eight. So we'll see on average player watches, you know, 7.2, 7.3 ads per session per day. Mm-hmm. The reason we do that is that A, we want to be mindful of our game design so that you know they can't just watch a bunch of ads in one day um, and then finish the game and then there's no day 30 retention mm-hmm. and then it's sort of like a pyrrhic victory, right? It's like, oh, okay, great. You, you made a bunch of money, but now I'm not here anymore. And the other reason is that we want to be mindful of our advertisers who will obviously be a little miffed if our view rates are really high if we have a huge number of impressions, but the users aren't really watching very carefully if they're just hitting play and then they go mm. and then like watch uh, baseball or something and just keep hitting play for an hour. The advertisers will quickly become aware of this low engagement and then they don't bid anything and then it's lose-lose for everybody. Mm-hmm. So we do recommend gating it slightly. Do you think RV works uniquely well in idle games? Or in fact, it's kind of more of a challenge because you're trying not to gate or cut off access to specific content. Therefore, you're sort of limited to kind of speed and payout. I think that rewarded video works tremendously well in idle games just because those two variables are easy to develop around and easy to monetize around. And for the players, it's also extremely easy to understand what you're doing. So I think there are problems with other types of games where you're encouraged to watch ads for a type of currency that you're going to get back, but it's not necessarily clear why you need the currency or what you're going to use it's, it What for. its value is for you. Exactly. And that, that becomes a problem. Like if I'm watching a puzzle game and I can earn a few coins, like, do I really need them? Like, what am I using this for? I'm going to spend money in this puzzle game. It doesn't make any sense to me. The only reason I'm picking on that puzzle game is I just played a puzzle game where I was earning, <laughs> I was earning coins. I didn't understand like the whole point of this. And then I got bored of the puzzle game. So I was playing. <laughs> um, so it's just, it's, it's just easier for everybody. Idol is great because the other side of it, like we occupy kind of this torso of game types where at the very, very bottom of games of the funnel, you have, or maybe at the top, depending on how you, you look at the direction things are moving, you have companies that are hyper-casual, like um, Voodoo or Ketchup. Mm-hmm. And they're really good at just getting a ton of people to play their games. And everybody plays them. Right? Hardcore players, casual players, midcore players, mm-hmm. you know, my parents, uh, your dog, it doesn't matter, everybody's playing these games because they, they required no effort to learn how to play and they're fun for, you know, a couple days, right? Which is why they have to release a new one every couple days, but they're right. good at that. And that's, <laughs> they go online. At the very end of the funnel, you have super hardcore games that are, you know, like hardcore strategy games, they're, they're RPGs and card battlers, games where there's 
it's just a lot of text and you're manipulating these armies that are all they exist are are text, right? You know, if you think about some of the chart toppers for the past couple of years. And idle games are a really good bridge between the two of them, where players, for the most part, who are a little bit more savvy will self-select into idle games and start playing them. And it's one of the few times I think that they're very receptive because of rewarded video. They're very receptive to marketing. So they will watch games that are better suited for getting them to spend like a tremendous amount of money, which are the games that I mentioned that are at the the end of the funnel, those Mm. strategy RPG type games, which is really what's cool about idle games. It's just that mid-core connective tissue between all of Mm. the game types. Interesting. Last question. Player feedback is obviously a hugely important part of the process. Uh, Fluffy Fairy, is it part of monetization decisions too? Are you kind of looking at player feedback and saying, okay, they're asking for more videos or we should take this video out? Yeah, so Fluffy Fairy Games aims to be the most player-driven games company in the world. So we're paying really close attention. We have weekly meetings with our community feedback team that are looking at the ratings, the reviews, and some of the player stats to try and determine where players want us to go. Player feedback is huge for us on monetization, and it totally ranges. Like, we didn't have any IAPs, so you could not make a purchase in our game until players started asking for ways to make purchases in our game. (laughs) It's like the dream. Yeah, it's like the dream dream to have, right? People actually wanting a DLC. So we added that and subsequently made money because of that. Players will ask for ways to watch more ads. They do like watching the ads, either for the rewards or just because they like the elements that are being advertised. So that's great. And that we're definitely keeping that in mind when we add new features, especially in our new game, Idle Factory Tycoon. We're always experimenting with new ways to uh, watch more ads or spend more money or things like that. And, you know, just in terms of like any of the new features we're doing, the tug of war there is between player feedback that is asking specifically for the new features that might be really fun and new features that might monetize. Oftentimes, players don't necessarily ask for things like a new bidder when it comes to how we're doing our advertising or a new back-end tech, which if our partner who does that for us is listening, nobody's asking for that, so don't worry. We're not going to change anything. Um, But I I think that it's always a challenge to see what we should be implementing there. Probably the the biggest feedback that we would get that's on like the negative side is just if ads start to break, and then we have to be super responsive to make sure that they aren't broken for both the sake of the advertiser, our ad networks that we're working with, and the players themselves who will be very vocal if ads are crashing their games or things like this. Cool. Well, Nate, thank you very, very much for taking the time to be with us. And thank you everyone for listening in. See you all next episode. PC or mobile? Mobile. iOS or Android? iOS. Super Mario or Sonic? Sonic. Shower or bath? Shower. (laughs) 